wrestling fans, happy holidays and welcome to a special holiday edition, December edition of Charting the Territories. My name is Al Getz and oh, what? wait a second, I think I hear something, some sound coming from my chimney. Could it be Santa delivering presents? No, no it, it's my co-host. Ladies and gentlemen, John Boucher has shimmied down the chimney just in time for this episode of Charting the Territories. How's it going, John? Going to the holiday season, and I'm coming down the chimney down, as they say. Right? How that song goes? Coming down the chimney down. Uh, yeah, it's going, going, going well. Chilly, chilly for both of us. Yeah, it's, uh, it was in the 20s this morning down here in Atlanta, and I understand it's pretty cold up there as well. We're recording this the Monday before the episode comes out, so we've got a little leeway. I think it's going to warm up here, but then they're saying it might get really cold uh, come Friday and Saturday. And, and it would be cold enough that if there is precipitation, we will have a white Christmas in Atlanta, which is very rare. Yeah, wow, well, that's cool. Wow. Interesting. But we're not here to talk about the weather. We are here to talk nope. about wrestling. R-A-S-S-L-I-N. That's wrestling. And before we get started, a reminder, our blog can be found at www.chartingtheterritories.com. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for Charting the Territories. I'm going to try and put more content on YouTube. Last month, we put out the um, the, the shit John bought me off eBay. I, I sort of made that into a YouTube video. We're going to do something similar this month. And of course, we always put up playlists of the match recommendations that we discuss on the podcast. And you can order my first book, the 1971 to 1973 Leroy McGurk, Oklahoma, Louisiana Wrestling Almanac, on Amazon.com, or visit the blog for info on how you can get an autographed copy if you live in the continental U.S. The uh, the autographed copies, John, I would love to say they've been flying off the shelves, but uh, I, I pride myself on being honest, and that is not the case. Hmm. But but the good news is, is that that means that plenty of copies remain. So if you okay. do want an autographed copy, uh, don't delay, just in case, you know, there is a rush on these things, but uh, don't hesitate to visit the blog and find out how you can get an autographed copy, which also includes a free four by six color photo of one of the wrestlers featured in the book, plus details on how you can save money on your order of a future book from me and from charting the territories. Now this month on the podcast, John, we're looking at the fourth quarter of 1978 in Leroy McGurk's territory. Ray Candy and Ernie Ladd's feud comes to a rather anticlimactic conclusion on Christmas Day. Plus, we'll run down the rest of that Superdome card, including a tag team title tournament won by a literal dream team. Yeah. Uh, a giant, a, a literal giant dream team, <laughs> if yep. you catch my drift. We'll also focus on two wrestlers who came to the territory for the first time during the quarter, one who was a karate and judo master, and one who ended up being a master of all trades in pro wrestling. All that, plus our regular monthly features, including Shit, John Bought Me Off eBay, John Plays Gordon Soley's Championship Wrestling Trivia, and This Month I Learned. Now, John, I'm sure you, just like me, eagerly uh, anticipated the release of the uh, latest inductees into the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame, hoping that some or all of uh, the people you chose got in. So, John, how'd that yeah. go? 
But didn't go well. Didn't go well, Al. Didn't go well at all. It didn't uh, go zero. well for me either. Yeah, we both we both hit a big goose egg. And actually, yeah. a lot of our peers, i.e., people of the same age who are who are voters in the same categories as you and I, were in the same boat. It, it's really a function of the process that that Dave has put in place as far as the different categories and the demographics of voters and the way sometimes certain categories get log jammed and then eventually get cleared out. So this was something that hit both the categories we voted in. There just really were not a lot of U.S. and Canadian-based historical candidates getting in, a, a lot more international this year. Uh, I'll never claim that the Observer Hall is perfect, but it is one of a few reputable halls out there. And really, if you take all of them together, then you get something good. You've got the uh, Tregosthes Hall of Fame in Iowa, the International Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame in Albany, New York. And you can even take the awards given annually uh, by the Cauliflower Alley Club reunions to be uh, a Hall of Fame of sorts. And if you take all of those entities together, you get a pretty good representation of Hall of Fame-worthy wrestlers from various eras. Uh, John, were there any big surprises uh, on your part as, as to who you thought was a shoe-in that did not get in? No, I was not. I was not surprised at all. Just knowing how that I, how that has gone gone in the past. But I think what is, I think what... Rocca and Perez. I was surprised again, even, yeah. and this is even with my issues with the way they did the tag teams this year. I yeah. really thought anyone that's voting in that category understands no matter how brief that run was, that it meant something big. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, the one the interesting footnote, like it's not a surprise. The footnote I wanted to mention was, Lou Darrow and Johnny Doyle getting put in. And it's always interesting to me to see who gets those sort of nods from, from Dave. Uh, Cause people really get hung up on who gets voted in. And for whatever reason, we'll, we'll, we'll bash Dave personally for rocket and Perez, the junkyard dog, whoever not getting in. Um, but the, the, the decrees for lack of a better term, are they're just, they're just super interesting. These it's usually guys from that era, you know, Lou Darrow, Johnny Doyle, or, Paul Pons, guys who would sort of languish on the ballot for, yeah, it, you know, you know, it's before our era and realistically it's before Dave's everybody. era. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and so really, you know, a lot of that is just taking the time to find out whatever you can. There's just so little information from that era aside from what we see in newspapers, which might be just strictly results. And we don't know how, we don't know how much that we're missing that, that it's sometimes hard to put together a convincing case. And I know uh, a lot of times, particularly when we're going international, Dave often relies on some, some historians uh, internationally to make the solid case for a certain uh, individual. And he, he places great weight on those. Yeah. So I was just wondering, like, you know, who knows, maybe in five years, you know, eight years time, maybe Morris Siegel just gets, it's gets the Dave decree, maybe, right? You know, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? It's, yeah, it's it's possible, and and yeah, it's it, it's an interesting thing to see how you know how the inductees are divvied up every year, especially a year like this when so much of it came uh, from Japan, uh, yeah. and so few uh, came from the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and Canada, and you know. Interesting to see how it went, but yes, both you and I were the big goose egg with <laughs> yeah, our. 
<laughs> votes our nominees. None of them got in. So no. we'll just have to try again next year. Yep. So uh, eBay. Uh, last Ooh. month, John bought me a record, an album uh, from Sergeant Slaughter and somebody named Camouflage. And apparently it was such a big hit that John decided to send me another album. And this one is from 1976. And if you think about Muhammad Ali in 1976, his biggest fight that that most people talk about was, of course, his fight with Antonio Inoki in the summer of 1976. But that might not have been his biggest fight. I think his battle with Mr. Tooth Decay (laughs) is far more important and vital than his fight with Antonio Inoki. And uh, so, listeners, this is an album from 1976, and it's entitled The Adventures of Ali and His Gang versus Mr. Tooth Decay, A Children's Story. And uh, not only is this is have a picture of uh, Muhammad Ali, a couple of pictures of Ali on the front, but there's actually a little note. The information on dental health contained in this children's record is considered by the American Dental Association to be in accord with current scientific knowledge, 1976. So, uh, yeah, this is a this has gotten the approval of the American Dental Association. And we talked about we said the title is Ali and his gang. So who is his gang? Who else guest stars on this record? It is a veritable who's who of celebrities in the mid-70s. We have Frank Sinatra, Richie Havens, Jane Kennedy, Ossie Davis, and special announcer Howard Cosell. (laughs) This is pretty wild. And John, in the past, when you've sent me original, you know, original factory sealed records, the first thing I do is rip that sucker open and play it. I couldn't do it. I could not do it for this one. This is absolutely, it's in its original, you know, plastic, plastic insurance crap. And I just could not bring myself to open it. But however, luckily enough, there is uh, quite a bit on YouTube. So I'm going to play a little snippet from the theme song that introduces us uh, to this record. So this is Muhammad Ali's theme. Crack in the Liberty Bell. Who really gave that bell a smack? Who punched it so hard that the bell did crack? Hit it so hard with an awful whack. So there you go. That is uh, 30 seconds of the uh, introductory theme to Ali and his gang versus Mr. I keep wanting to say Mr. Tooth Decay, <laughs> like uh, like Cindy Brady on that episode <laughs> of when she lost her tooth. But there's a great synopsis of the plot of this album on Wikipedia. So we'll I'll, I'll read directly from that. The album opens with Ali's historical theme song, a musical number featuring Ali before the story narrated by Howard Cosell begins. The plot of the story involves Ali training for an upcoming fight against Mr. Tooth Decay, who is accompanied by sidekicks Sugar Cuber and Willie Plack. Ali then rescues a group of children from buying ice cream from a shopkeeper played by Frank Sinatra. Oh dear. Well, John, I gotta say, 
As weird as that sounds, that was not the original uh, person nor role slotted for this album. Instead of an ice cream shop run by Frank Sinatra, originally it was going to be a bicycle store owned by Gordon Jump. Oh, Jesus Christ. Which, of course, would have made this a whole different (laughs) record altogether. A very special record. A very special Muhammad Ali versus the... uh, the pedophile bicycle store owner. Yeah. Oh, geez. So I think they made the right choice. Uh, but yeah. then after rescuing them from ice cream, heaven forbid, he takes the children to an organic farm where they learn the importance of drinking milk and eating fruit and vegetables from farmer Brother St. John, played by Ossie Davis. The album concludes with the fight between Ali and Mr. Tooth Decay. Now, they actually recorded, at some point later on, they recorded a short film on this. And do you know who played Mr. Tooth Decay? I was reading about this, and I figured this would be a good way to tie this back to, to, to wrestling, even yeah. without going into the Enoki uh, the stuff. Mr. Tooth Decay, in, in this short film, which I've been looking for and cannot find, uh, is portrayed by Chuck Webner. So, right. of course, uh, had the match against Andre... And then was that 76? Yeah, well, that was uh, was on the undercard. That was on the closed yeah. circuit undercard oh, yeah, yeah. of Ali yeah, and Oki. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So it's all, uh, it all ties together. All ties together, baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is uh, this is pretty wild. Like I said, you can if you want to hear this whole thing, uh, you can find it on YouTube. Um, Ossie Davis. So, um, gosh, I, I love Ossie Davis. You've seen Do the Right Thing, John. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, yep, I yep, just yep. love... Ossie Davis and Ruby D in that movie. Uh, they're just incredible uh, actors. This was late in both of their careers. They, they both put on uh, an incredible performance in, in uh, not quite a cameo role, but, you know, very small roles compared to, you know, the rest of the film, but very important roles. Uh, yeah. I have so, a fun uh, Ossie Davis fun fact. Okay. Uh, so then it sort of reminds, it sort of reminds me of the way some wrestlers get uh, get sort of serendipitously named accidentally. Um, Ossie Davis, uh, his real name is Rayford Chatman Davis, um, and he became known as Ossie when his mother's his mother was pronouncing his name R.C. Davis, and it was misheard by like the courthouse record clerk, you know, in Georgia, and he he heard R.C. as Ossie, and that's what went on his uh, on his birth certificate. That's fascinating. That's that's wild. I've never heard that before. <laughs> that that's that's incredible. As uh, as John that's, Davidson would say on ABC in the early nineteen eighties, that's incredible. Uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, how did you? Was this something on your want list, wish list, or did you just stumble upon it? Well, it is um it is on my 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 wish list. I remember the first time seeing the cover of this record was probably twenty years ago, and I, I thought it was like a like a Photoshop mock up, like someone <laughs> had. It, see, there's no way this could be a real thing. And then a couple of years later, uh, hearing it on WFMU, the 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 free forum radio station out of Jersey City. Uh, and I'm pretty sure if I was a gambling man, I would bet that there's a, a blog entry on WFMU. There is. I was, I was looking at that earlier today, and there is one. Yes. <laughs> of course. So there you go. Um, and yeah, so there's another Ollie record, too. Uh, I think there's two other ones. There's one, I'm the Greatest from the 60s, and there's another one from the 
70s is more of an anti-drug thing. I think it's Jimmy Carter on it. Um, so those are all those, those two are both on my both on my on my want list. But someday, so, someday. John, so our l- listeners know that John is on the hunt for Muhammad Ali on vinyl. If you can help <laughs> him track down any leads, let <laughs> him know where can where can they find you on Twitter, John? That's at John underscore B O U C H E R on Twitter. Hit there me up with go. those uh, Discogs links. Yeah, let him know. Uh, so we're going to talk about 1978, the fall of 1978, the fourth quarter of 1978. And of course, you can see uh, complete information about the quarter on the blog, including the full roster ranked by spot rating, uh, the list of the top feuds, the calendar of events, and uh, advertised lineups for all known house shows. But we also compile a quick and dirty rankings uh, for the territory. And this is based on the week-by-week spot ratings for each wrestler, which measures their average position on the card, and also how many weeks they were in the territory during the quarter. And it splits um, singles matches and tag team matches separately. So the top five most push acts for the fourth quarter of 1978, uh, number five was the assassin, Jody Hamilton. Number four was Jose Lothario. Number three was the team of Bobby Jaggers and Jerry Brown. Number two was Ray Candy. And number one was Ernie Ladd. Uh, So not too long ago, Tales from the Territories finished up their first season with an episode on Mid-South Wrestling, which, of course, also covered the pre-Mid-South years. And one of the tales they told involved Jerry Brown. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, for any of our listeners that did not see that episode, John, really quick, provide a synopsis of uh, Jerry Brown's tale. (laughs) <laughs> the Jerry Brown tale is told by told by Jim Ross, and it involves a disgruntled uh, Jerry Brown uh, sitting outside Bill Watts's home, uh, sort of stalking stalking the old cowboy. And I guess at some point he uh, sent a uh, like a package with a ticking clock in it to Watts. Uh, with you know the, the inferring that hey this this could be a bomb next time cowboy, uh, and then after that there was was uh, apparently some gunshots fired through the the window near in the vicinity of Watts's kid, at which point Watts decided that was the last straw, marches outside <laughs> with a with a shotgun and puts it in the face of uh, Jerry Brown and. Had they had some words, and that was that, and so, Brown was gone forever. So it sounds like th- that would have need to have taken a while, all all you know, for all those things to have happened. This isn't something that happened in one day. Apparently, yeah, apparently, yeah. I think the the cops chased him off at one point, according to the the JR telling of the story. But he would come back, you know, repeatedly and, and just stalking and being a nuisance and being a creep in the way. So Jerry Brown so wouldn't. Did. Wouldn't that have to mean that Brown was still in the area, was still living there after having been fired by Watts? That would make sense, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I, I'll tell you what. Uh, now, I'm not saying this story is not true. Uh, but what I'm saying is if we're, if we're talking about the time that Jerry Brown was fired by Watts, the only time that could have happened would have been in early 1979. So, of course... Brown is teaming with Jaggers, and they finish up uh, in early 1979. His last advertised booking for the McGurk-Watts territory was February 2nd in Lafayette, Louisiana. And then 
He's in central states, central states no later than February 8th. Hmm. So I don't know that that is enough time for an initial camping out of the house, <laughs> the time to send a bomb and then come back later. Again, we have to understand a lot of times wrestlers take stories and sort of uh, add to them rather oh, yeah. liberally. And, and of course, in this case, the story came from Jim Ross, who heard it from Bill Watts. So again, perhaps perhaps it's even an example of the game of yeah. telephone, where oh, as yeah. the story gets repeated, uh, little parts get added on. But there doesn't seem a window for this to have happened directly immediately after that last firing of Jerry Brown. So take with that info what you will. Of course, I'll say this if you uh, want to know why they called the show, which was a lot of fun and I enjoyed it, Tales from the Territories. If you oh, yeah. look up the textbook definition of the word tales, you might uh, start understanding why you should take things with a grain of salt. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. And that's that was that was the uh, when I whenever I would uh, try to get involved in, uh, you know, like, I don't know, and like. That that was the that that was the the response a lot of times. Well, the show is Tales from the Territories. Okay, right. noted. Noted. Uh, the show is Tales from the Territories. Second, <laughs> I, you know, uh, this is Jim Ross t- telling you know telling a story as he yeah. believes he heard it. You know, this is again the point is just like pro wrestling. The 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 point of the show was to get you engaged and interested. And a story of a, of a wrestler being fired and being mad about it. And storming off and cursing out the boss on the way out is far less exciting than uh, mailing a, uh, a ticking alarm <laughs> clock and shooting uh, you know, bullets through the window that missed his daughter by, you know, mere millimeters. Yeah, that, that first so, one doesn't make it onto the show. Yeah, yeah I, I, you know, watching watching the uh, the show, uh, particularly Ken Patera. Uh, on the AWA episode, sure seemed to have no problem blatantly lying and not caring that it's obvious. And when everyone else on that panel, you know, pretty much called him out on it, he just, you know, he just kept his, kept his feet, you know, kept his, kept his ground. One of my favorite parts of the entire series was watching Jim Brunzel and and uh, Greg Gagnon, specifically Jim Brunzel's reaction to Patera telling the story, it was just so funny watching those because they know they you know they heard the story how many times. Right. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh Ken, oh Ken's doing this again. Oh, oh, Ken, here, okay. here goes Ken. You know, and again, knowing that it will make for entertaining TV, not only Ken's recollection but their mild rebuttals or attempts to you know. Yeah get the truth from Ken. They understood that. Sorry, this is, this is what the audience wants, you know, wants to say. They, they know Ken's full of shit. We know Ken's full of shit, but let's let Ken have his fun and it, it would be even more entertaining. Yes. Exactly. So, you know, that's sort of the way it goes. And, uh, you know, uh, interesting to hear you trying to be the voice of reason, uh, in some cases on that show. And then perhaps, uh, the falling, falling on deaf ears, hey, you know, but uh, I want to move on to talk about something we learned just recently uh, about the North American title history during 1978. We, uh, the last time we covered this year, 1978, we talked about how it seemed like Ladd regained the North American title from Paul Lohendorf, but we couldn't pin down an exact date of the title change. We could only see which house shows had advertised title defenses and speculate. Well, it turns out the title did not change hands on a house show. Uh, 
And it's actually something I wrote about a few years back on the blog when that random McGurk TV episode from 1978 popped up on the WWE Network. I actually wrote a detailed blog post talking about many things that were discussed on the episode. And recently, one of our listeners slash followers on Twitter, Christopher Elam, E-L-A-M, um, went back over the episode and, and you know tweeted us about it. But basically, the story with the North American title was that a couple of months after Orndorff won the title from Ladd, on TV, Bill Watts announces that after an instant replay review of Ladd's loss, the TV title, I'm sorry, the North American title was returned to Ladd. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one and one you don't hear often. Now, of course, every now and then they'll hold up a title pending a rematch like a week later. But to do this two months after the fact is very interesting. What, what I will say, it's not like, and it wasn't done because Orndorff had left the territory. As a matter of fact, so this this episode of McGurk's TV aired in August of 1978. Orndorff stayed through about another month afterwards. So it's not like Orndorff left and they had to come up with something. It's also seemingly not because they didn't want Orndorff to do a job because as he's finishing up after that title change airs, he is losing on the house shows to Ladd, and then he even loses a couple of matches to Ron Bass on the house shows. Hmm. So if this is one of those Watts trying to be more like other sports. That, yeah, that's when I read be, this, that was the first yeah. thing I thought. <laughs> might be the answer uh to do that but and, and but the fact that it that it you know happened a, a couple of months or, or however long you know significant period of time afterwards so the question is for those people who track title lineages and title histories if the title was returned to lad does that mean orndorf ever really held it Think about what would happen in boxing or MMA if a similar situation arose. Let's say, mm. for whatever reason, someone wins a title, defends it, and then perhaps the drug test from the original title match came back and he popped positive. Mm. They would have vacated his title win. They would have discounted his one successful title defense, and they would have claimed that the original champion maintained the title throughout. So if you really care about these things, you really need to think about... Was Orndorff actually the champion? Hmm. So we don't quite know the why of Ladd regaining or retaining the title, although this the instant replay being a, a similar to real sports uh, and Watts wanting to do that seems the most likely story. But we do know that he was the champion of record heading into a big show late in the year. Ernie Ladd and Ray Candy had been feuding on and off for most of 1978. They had a steel cage match, which had been won by Candy as the main event of a Superdome card over the summer. And then they went off in different directions. And as we get into the fall, Ladd is now once again the North American champion. Candy wins the title from Ladd in November, and they build up to another big match at the Superdome, this time a title match on Christmas Day. However, Candy did not appear at the show. Now, some reports uh, indicate that the live crowd was told he was, quote-unquote, attacked backstage and couldn't compete, but in all likelihood, he wasn't physically there. Ladd was announced the winner 
by forfeit and given the title. So another another weird title change involving the North American title in the same calendar year. Um, what I'll say is this. The promotion had a full week before Christmas off. There were no house shows at all the six days before the Christmas Day card at the Superdome. So it's possible that some of the wrestlers went home for the holidays, chose to you know go home to spend time with their family leading up to Christmas. And then from there, perhaps weather or other circumstances prevented Candy from making it to New Orleans for the show. Of course, Candy originally from the Atlanta area. So you could certainly see him going home to Georgia to spend a week or so with his family and then perhaps having trouble driving back to New Orleans. I do know it was incredibly cold in New Orleans on Christmas Day. I tried to Google and see if there's any snow or anything in New Orleans or in Georgia or in between the two. I didn't see anything, but I don't know how reliable these historical weather uh, sites are. Yeah, I tried the same thing, and I got mostly for New Orleans and uh, uh, Atlanta. I think he's where is he from? Decatur. Yeah, he's from Decatur, which is a suburb of Atlanta. Yeah, and it's it's like I, I got a lot of a lot of fog, a lot of rain, uh, and that sort of stuff. You so, know? and and but, as I said, it was really cold. So even if it wasn't cold enough to snow, if it was freezing rain yeah. or on the border of that, and there was fog, sure, this is this yeah. becomes very likely. Um, and similar to Orndorff, Orndorff, of course, stayed around after that weird title switch. So did Candy. This wasn't him quitting or leaving or being fired and then having to do a cookie title switch. Candy stayed through, I believe, the end of January. Uh, so this was just one of those where he didn't show up. And whether the original plan was for Lad to win the title or not, we don't know. But they chose, with Candy not being there, to award Lad the title by forfeit. Um, yeah. and, like, and like you said, it's like this, it's he's still in the territory for a month after this, so it's, it's unlikely that this was you know him writing him writing him out of the story, and and it, it, because it's a Christmas Day Superdome show, it's safe to say that he would deliberately miss this show. Yeah, uh, it would it would have been a huge payday, huge payoff. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's also and there were several. I think there were two other title changes on the card. So it's not like, you know, well, we need to have a title change, so let's do yeah. this. There were already title changes. So it's just one of those. I, I think this that was the original plan. Um, as again, with Candy leaving a month later, they probably, again, you know, the thing with people leaving, you know, you never know whose choice it is, whether the promotion tells the wrestler they're finishing up or the wrestler tells the promotion they're finishing up. But it's very possible that a month out, this was known that Candy was going to be done in about a month or so. So taking the title off him at this time made sense. And thus, why not do it on a big show and perhaps yeah. one of the bigger shows of the year? I think attendance wise, this one drew, according to what's on WrestlingData.com, just under 16,000, which is uh, low uh Maybe t more towards the middle. I think if you take all the Superdome cars, including the abysmal ones in the latter days of the UWF, it probably falls in the middle. For this era, it's probably on the low end of what the shows drew. We talked about how in the summer, the Candy Lad Steel Cage match drew shockingly well. And this one seems to not have done that. But one of the interesting things, John, is that we have the program 
oh, yeah. for yeah. this. So uh, let's let's go through the program page by page. It's a 2020. So uh, sorry, it's a 20 page color program, and the cover says mm-hmm. "Championship Wrestling Extravaganza Christmas Spectacular in the Louisiana Superdome." And there are pictures on the front. And also, I'll say this. Um, the name of the promotion sure appears to be Championship Wrestling because that appears yep. a couple of times. I know, and this was even on the Tales from the Territories, uh, they claimed that the promotion was called Tri-States for decades. That, yep. all I'll say is I have, I have never seen originally sourced documentation that the name Tri-State was used either publicly or even privately until 1979 when Watson McGurk split. Uh, if, if, if there's anything out there, you know, point me to it. But I'm talking actual programs, newspaper ads, any business information. There is no evidence that I have seen linking the word, the words tri-state before 1979. Okay. Uh, but on the cover, uh, we have pictures of outlaw Ron Bass, Bobby Jaggers, Randy Tyler, and Mike George. And then at the bottom of the cover, it says one night tournament for the United States tag team championship winning team gets title and $25,000. Uh, and looking at uh, the title histories, the reason why they had the tournament, Jaggers and Brown were the champions at the beginning of the quarter. Mike George and Randy Tyler beat Jaggers and Brown in Tulsa in November. A couple weeks later, they're defending the titles against Jaggers and Brown in Shreveport, and Brown was, quote-unquote, injured during the match and, quote-unquote, had to leave. Ron Bass took his place mid-match, and Jaggers and Bass won the match and were initially awarded the titles. But the belts ended up being held up because of this, because Bass wasn't the legal man or wasn't, you know, on the contract for the title match. Uh, so can we make an argument that Jerry Brown left to go sit outside Bill Watts' house? <laughs> <laughs> Is that part of the angle? Yes. Instead of getting injured, he actually just decided <laughs> to leave. And he, 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 they, someone informed him that a package had been delivered to him in the back. Uh, and it was the uh, the alarm clock, so he needed to bring it to Watts's house. Yeah. But uh-huh. again, yet another example of a kerflui title scenario, yeah. uh, which was often the case. But this is the reason why there is the tag team tournament at the Superdome. So the next page of the program, the main event for tonight's championship wrestling extravaganza will feature the greatest tag teams in professional wrestling today in a tournament for the vacant U.S. tag team titles, plus $25,000. And here they acknowledge Watts uh, as matchmaker in print. Yeah. Promoter Leroy McGurk and matchmaker Bill Watts. Uh, they call this the greatest spectacular ever. And then we've got pictures of the team that will go on to win the tournament and be crowned United States Tag Team Champions, but never actually defend them. <laughs> Yet again, another example of a curfewy yeah, yeah. t- title situation. But this is Dusty Rhodes and Andre the Giant. Like I said, a legitimate giant dream team. And then there's also, there's something very interesting that we'll talk about later, but there's information on how you can order your 1979 Superdome Series season tickets. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's coming. But first, there's a letter from the 
executive department of the state of Louisiana signed by the governor, Edwin the governor, Edwards. Yeah, yeah. Four-term governor. Yeah. Was he, was, was, is Eddie Edwards related to Edwin Edwards? I don't think so. He, oh, oh, that man. would be amazing, think- though. But this guy so. later went to jail for 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 racketeering. I, I think I'm one stunned. of the more wild Edwin Edwards stories is from his one of his, his 1991 comeback after like having gone on trial for mail fraud, obstruction of justice, bribery, all this stuff. A journalist was quoted as saying, "The only way Edwin Edwards could ever be elected again was to run against Adolf Hitler." That was the quote. Oddly enough, he ran against Edwards, Adolf. No. Uh, Edwards' runoff opponent in the 1991 primary primary was former Grand Wizard of the KKK, David Duke. Uh, Edwards received 34 percent of the vote, while Duke received 32 percent of the vote. <laughs> the incumbent governor placed third behind Duke. Um, wow! All that that said, nice of him to uh, pen this greeting to the wrestling fans. And from the from the sounds of it, the way it's worded, it appears that they were expecting a lot of people to travel from out of town. To yeah, the card. they they sort of saw this as a, a tentpole event, not just for the wrestling, but for the city of New Orleans in and of itself. Um, they also mentioned in this letter from Governor Edwards. Uh, According to him, the previous uh, Superdome card in July broke attendance records for professional wrestling. Uh, Again, as we said, we don't know the exact number because there's two conflicting numbers going around, but it seems to have been a huge number in the mid, if not upper 20,000s, you know, just shy of 30,000. And they were hoping for a similar crowd here. We don't believe they got it. The next page shows the official National Wrestling Alliance World Champions and Regional Champions. So, John, why don't you go through the roll call of champions? Roll call of champions. You got Harley Race here. I think Harley's been champion since what? Like February of 77 here. And we've got uh, Nelson Royal, our junior heavyweight champion, four-time junior heavyweight champion, I believe. Um, Interesting because I've also seen Al Madrill listed as junior heavyweight champion around this time, but we yeah, know how that's one that of goes. those that might've been a, a <laughs> Houston only or a Texas Houston. only, or uh, exactly there might've been yeah. Royal might've regained it by this point or yeah, who knows, but, uh, and North American heavyweight champion, as we discussed earlier is Ray Candy. Champion. There are no U S tag team champions, but then there's a few uh, secondary champions. We've talked about the Louisiana tag team titles uh, being reinstated earlier in the year. And then not long after that, the Louisiana state heavyweight title was reinstated. And at this time, the Louisiana tag team champs are Ricky Fields and Terry Lathan. And the Louisiana champion is the assassin. But there are three other champions listed here, John. Who are they? We've got Ron Bass, Cowboy Outlaw Ron Bass is our Brass Knucks champ. We've got Ray Candy again as our Arkansas state champ. And our friend Jerry Stubbs as a Mississippi state champion. Yeah, so they had they had reinstituted Arkansas and Mississippi titles not long before this card. Uh, Arkansas was decided by a one-night tournament. I believe Ladd won it, but then the very next week, Candy won it, the title from him. 
And then Stubbs, of course, won the Mississippi title. The Arkansas title didn't really stay a thing for much longer. And certainly by the time of the McGurk-Watts split, Watts would not have kept the Arkansas title, uh, if it, even if it was still around, because he was not running in Arkansas when they split. He stayed in Louisiana and Mississippi, but he did keep the Mississippi and the Louisiana titles. There's also an ad uh, on the bottom, um, eight warning signals of cancer. Oh, God. Right after that, there's the uh, merchandise page. <laughs> I'm fascinated by the cowbell. Yes. Yeah. So there's some amazing items on here. There, of course, is a hat, uh, some T-shirts, a pennant that uh, is listed as a colorful wrestling extravaganza pennant. Then there's a button. And then, as John mentioned, there is a cowbell. So, (laughs) okay, this can't be a real cowbell. It's a dollar. Even in 1978, the ashtray is $3. The cowbell is it one dollar? What could the cowbell be made of? I was like, I'm thinking. I think cowbell. I think that thing from like the Dusty Rhodes versus Superstar Billy Graham match. You know, they're bleep, busting each other open at the head with right. that kind of cowbell. Are there other kinds of cowbells like a something I mean, that could, could be, be made a really, for a dollar? It could be a really small one. <sighs> uh, or you know, if you've got three bucks to burn, you can get an ashtray. <laughs> three yeah, bucks yeah. to burn, you can get an <laughs> ashtray. See what I did there? Maybe, I didn't, maybe I didn't we even plan a, on it. <laughs> you can get the, we can ask uh, Sparks Third Coast to make yeah. a uh, cowbell yes. for us, that logo. <laughs> so for all uh, for all the claims that Vince McMahon invented, you know, merchandising wrestling, here we see in 1978, you could get cowbells and ashtrays and more from Leroy McGurk's championship wrestling. Oh, yeah. Uh, the next page is an ad for a radio station. Uh, This is an AM station in New Orleans, and apparently it is America's most talked about radio station. Mm. As a matter of fact, uh, there's a quote from Ray Hart from a newspaper in Cleveland (laughs) claiming that programmers at WWIW are neck deep in new waters and are darn near drowning in success. So, yes, apparently this New Orleans-based radio station was so huge that they were writing newspaper articles about it in Cleveland. Yeah. Also quotes from uh, Patty Page and Billy Eckstein, who are both great, great artists. And I don't want to diminish their you know, work, but it's like the commercial peaks were probably 20 or 30 years. <laughs> yeah, I can't see the average wrestling fan in 1978 <laughs> saying, oh, I love me some Patty Page. Yeah, but this is like a, this is the WWIW is like the, the way it was. It's like an oldies, like, like a big band station, right? right? So like, I, mean, I guess when you think about the demographic of wrestling fans back then, maybe you have the old timers in the crowd as well as you know actual babies being cradled by parents. So maybe maybe you know it did skew you know old older as well. Then well, too. so maybe. think about today. What so if we're saying in 1978 they're they're playing music from. 35 years earlier or more. So in 2022, that means music from 1987 or earlier, which both you and I would love. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe it's not that far fetched. Then once you, once you, once you do the math, it all almost (laughs) makes sense. But also not only are Dusty and Andre in the tag team tournament, but apparently there's a very special guest to be the referee for the tournament. Oh yeah. None other than Danny Hodge. And this is 
more than uh, two and a half years, uh, or maybe just about two and a half years after the uh, automobile accident that ended Hodge's in-ring career. Of course, he would have one match in, I think, 1980 against Eric Embry, and then have a couple of matches for a promotion he tried to start in Oklahoma in 81 or 82. But here he is uh, advertised as coming in to be a special referee for that U.S. tag team tournament. Then there's a couple of pictures of young Leroy McGurk, followed by current, at the time, Leroy McGurk. (laughs) It's always a treat to see Leroy with the pre-sunglasses Leroy. Yeah, and of course, remember, even in that pre-sunglasses picture, he is uh, blind in one eye. Yeah, uh, as yep, he had yep. been since childhood and still managed to become a champion in, uh, I believe, amateur wrestling and professional wrestling, yeah. definitely in professional wrestling. I know he was highly decorated as an amateur. I'm not sure necessarily that he won titles, but he was very highly regarded. We also have the TV listings for the territory. And it's, uh, you know, the, the cities that they ran regularly, Oklahoma City, Tulsa, Little Rock. Shreveport, Monroe, Baton Rouge, New Orleans, Alexandria, Lafayette, Jackson. What's interesting is there are two towns listed in this TV schedule that we don't have regular house show records for in 1978. And that's Fort Smith, Arkansas and Springfield, Missouri. Now, both of those had been weekly towns dating back to the 60s, uh, if not even before that. Springfield... It seems like they stopped running it regularly in the early 70s. Fort Smith, I think somewhere around 76 or 77, we stopped seeing ads for that town as well. And of course, just because they're no longer running ads in the newspapers doesn't prove that they're no longer running the town regularly. Uh, And given the fact that the TV is still airing in those two markets in 1978, this may, you know, lead us to believe that they were still running the towns regularly. Now, both those towns were run by Leroy after the split in 79, uh, when he had, you know, a smaller area and thus, you know, needed to start running more towns. Those did become weekly towns again if they had been dark, but they might not have been dark all this time. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. So many fun little clues buried in these programs. It, it, and, you know, it, and they're clues that sadly won't lead to anywhere. Because like I said, we, we, I've looked through the newspapers for Springfield and Fort Smith, and there are no ads. And so the question is, would they have run the town without ads? We can't, you know, po- we can't positively say, no, they wouldn't have done that. It's very possible that for whatever reason, the newspaper editor was, didn't like wrestling and thus wouldn't, uh, you know, take the ads, or maybe they were doing well enough that they didn't feel the need to promote yeah. these mm-hmm. cards. Uh, and at the same time, the paper wasn't covering them, uh, uh, you know, with by listing results. So it's just one of those mysteries that may never be solved. Hmm. Tag Team Tournament. Oh, yeah. Was loaded. There were... Some teams brought in from outside the territory. We mentioned Dusty and Andre, but also a brother tag team who also was unsuccessful in being uh, voted into the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame ballot this year when they were on the ballot as a team. And that is the team of Jack and Jerry Briscoe. Sure. Other teams are the Louisiana State Tag Team Champions, Ricky Fields and Terry Lathan, as well as the 
uh, a team that held the title held the titles earlier in the year, Bobby Jaggers and Jerry Brown. So we've got a bracket. Yes. Uh, the first round was scheduled as Terry Lathan and Ricky Fields versus Jack and Jerry Briscoe. The Angel and the Ox, the Angel being Frank Morrell, the Ox being Ox Baker versus Ernie Ladd and Stan Hansen. Wahoo McDaniel and Stephen Littlebear against the Assassins. And this was Jody Hamilton. And Assassin number two at this time here was Roger Smith. Then we have in the fourth match, Randy Tyler and Mike George versus Bobby Jaggers and Jerry Brown. And then the fifth match in the first round was Ron Bass and Ron Slinker versus Andre the Giant and Dusty Rhodes. And the winner of that match would get a bye. And one of the interesting things about when they had one-night tournaments in this era, John, you often would see an odd number of teams or matches in the first round. And this was sometimes, this was generally done so that there were buys throughout, which probably was good for the wrestlers. Instead of every team having to wrestle three times a night, they could have staggered it so some of them may have only had to wrestle two. Also, to create a reason for a rematch, if a heel team gets a bye into the finals and then wins, the babyface team has, an, has a legitimate gripe in that they, did, they had to wrestle more times than the other team. It also serves as, I guess, protection in case they want to do a double count or a double DQ if they have five first round matches and one of them ends up in a double, you know, whatever then there are four teams advancing and they can just do two matches. Huh. Uh, And looking at the results from this card, uh, more to see uh, if all these teams wrestled as advertised. In the first round, the Briscoes beat Fields and Lathan. Ladd and Hanson beat the Angel. The Ox was not there, and subbing for the Ox was Gama Singh. Huh. Uh, Stephen Littlebear also did not appear. Subbing for him was Jim Shields, and the team of Wahoo and Shields beat the Assassins. Jaggers and Brown beat Tyler and George, and Andre and Dusty beat the Rons, Bass and Slinker. (laughs) In the second round, Andre and Dusty got the bye, so Ladd and Hanson beat the Briscoes. Jaggers and Brown beat Wahoo and Shields, and then uh, Ladd and Hanson get the bye into the finals. And so there's just one semifinal match, and that is Andre and Dusty beating Jaggers and Brown, leading to Andre and Dusty beating Ladd and Hanson to win the tag team titles and $25,000. Hmm. So three no-shows altogether, correct? Correct. Candy, Little Bear, and Ol' Ox. Okay, cool. Um, I, I haven't, gone, we haven't gone through the rest of the card to see if there were any others uh let me look real quick because there were there were non-tournament matches as well yes um so let's run through those obviously aside from candy and lad there's also a brass knucks trophy match with killer carl cox uh challenging ron bass and bass won that match uh the louisiana state title was on the line as jerry stubbs faced the assassin and stubbs won that one uh, interesting that a lot of these wrestlers are advertised as doing double duty. A lot of hmm. the wrestlers in the tournament, uh, Lad, Bass, and the Assassin, are, are also in non you know non tournament matches. Plus, Bob Marcus versus Baron Carl von Krupp 
a.k.a. Killer Carl Krupp, and then Jim Shields versus Bill Irwin. And since Jim Shields ended up subbing in the tournament for Stephen Littlebear, they actually had Buck Robley take his place and wrestle against Bill Irwin. There's also an ad for uh, what I'm guessing is a bar named Sir John's. Hmm. And apparently at Sir John's, Thursday night is ladies' night. Ladies Mm. drink free. And the slogan of Sir John's is a rock bar in Fat City. All right. Then there's a full page ad on the next page for um, technical technical training from uh, (laughs) Meadows Drawthon College, D-R-A-U-G-H-O-N. Education may make you smart, but training will make you employable. Call Hmm. for information on clerk typist, secretarial, key punch, and drafting. Hmm. And then there's another ad for jobs on the next page for overseas jobs. From a company scares me. Yeah, from a company (laughs) called World Scan. S-C-A-N, which is way too close to World Scam. With an M for my liking. <laughs> but yeah, this, this seems like, sure, call us and uh, buy yourself a one-way ticket to, you know, Kenya, and there'll be someone waiting at the airport for you to give you a yeah. job. A guy named Olu. Yeah. Yes. And next thing you know, they, uh, next thing you know, you are penniless overseas. <laughs> There's a little write-up on the uh, Lad Candy Feud. Also an ad for the Children's Hospital. Yeah. Uh, and then names in the news. Uh, and here there's a lovely picture of Baron Carl von Krupp. I got to say, I could give a shit if Carl von Krupp could wrestle worth a lick or not. Just on his look alone, oh, yeah. I would bu- I would book him as a, as a top star. I mean, he just looks uh, with the monocle and oh, yeah. that that the eyes uh, and, and that that grin on his Smile. face. He really understood. And again, as we've said on the podcast before, probably due to his, you know, growing up in Nazi-occupied Netherlands, he probably saw a lot of that and and was able to adapt that for his character. But they also have a a, a picture of Bob Marcus, who is probably best known for his uh, work in Ontario over the years. The Angel, Frank Morell. The deadly karate expert Ron Slinker, yeah. and the master of the lariat Stan Hansen, and then rookies. A uh, picture of the top rookies that were scheduled to face one another in the opener. That was Jim Shields and Bill Irwin. We talked about Shields the last time we talked about 1978. He had been an amateur wrestler and was a coach of one of the wrestling teams at a high school in Tulsa around the time he broke into wrestling for a very brief career. Then there's a little write-up on the Louisiana State heavyweight title match between Stubbs and the Assassin, and a plug to uh, advertise in this yeah. program. An ad to solicit ads. Oh, yeah. Uh, then there's a picture of Killer Carl Cox, and he is holding a T-shirt with his initials on it. Yes. And just to the right... <laughs> Of that, there's an ad for the Marines featuring uh, featuring a black man uh, yeah. preparing to run a race. So yeah, I just find it fascinating good, uh... that you have KKK yes. directly yeah. parallel to this ad for the Marines. 
Yeah, no, 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 no. Not good, not good ad. If I was, you know, I wonder if the, if the Marines uh, advertised in the next program after getting their <laughs> prime ad placement. Yeah, being a little <laughs> peculiar. Then we have an article written by Norm Keitzer, publisher of the Wrestling News and publisher of uh, these programs for Leroy McGurk. We also have a photo not only of Watts uh, and billing him as matchmaker, but also of Jack Curtis Jr. And yeah. Jack Curtis Jr. was Bill and Leroy's front man in Mississippi at this time. Recall the Culkins had split from Watts and McGurk and were running their own little territory in Mississippi. Watts and McGurk went head to head with them in Jackson and also ran in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and their front man in Mississippi was Jack Curtis Jr., which doesn't sound like a big deal until you realize that Jack and George Culkin were related. They were brothers-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we talked about that. Ooh, that was like one of our one of our one of our first handful of shows, right? That uh, the yeah. whole Curtis, yeah, that was a the whole Curtis Culkin uh, family tree. I have more bad blood than the Hatfields and McCoys, or than the yeah, Fullers yeah. and the Fullers. Yeah, interesting too. They're, they've got a photo here. Uh, I, I think this is the first time I've seen a photo of him. Was the uh, uh, Emile Bruno, the uh, chairman of the Louisiana State Athletic Commission, who a guy who factored heavily into to wrestling in, in Louisiana. Watts talks a little bit about him in his book, I believe. Um, the cliff note version is like if there was something like you could just only one person in each county or whatever that could be granted a promoter's license. Right. So there was a lot of palm greasing going on, I would imagine. Allegedly. Yes, allegedly. Uh, allegedly. Uh, yeah. yeah but, uh, and given that the you know, we given what we learned about the governor at this time and what <laughs> happened to him later, this is uh, yeah. this is just Louisiana for you. Now the next page is the one I really want to talk about because it's okay. a season ticket order form for the 1979 Superdome series, where you could buy tickets to all scheduled events for 1979 in the Superdome. And on the schedule, they have 10 shows. One in February, one in March, one in April, one in May, one in June, July, August, September, November. And December. John, how many of those 10 shows do you think actually took place? Hmm. I'm going to go with seven. Nope. The answer is between two and four. Oh, geez. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> March, uh, sorry, April and July, April and July happened. November and December, I've not seen full results, but I have seen info on title changes that may have been attributed to those shows. So I'm not positive for sure that that's correct, but they were scheduled to run the Sunday after Thanksgiving in 1979, as well as Christmas, uh, the day after Christmas, which was December 26th. But these shows scheduled for February, April, May, June, August, and September definitely did not happen. It's possible some of that, particularly the ones in the summer, were a function of the issues between Watts and McGurk, which had to have been, you know, prevalent at that point in time. The split happened in early September. Yeah. So some point during the summer, this had to have, you know, they had to have, you know, started their divorce or yeah. whatever you want to call it. But imagine being a wrestling fan and pre-ordering 
tickets for 10 shows yeah. and only getting less than half and maybe even only two. Yeah. $200 might not sound like a lot of money now. Yeah, that's, but, so uh, that's uh, the price for the season tickets for 10 events. You could get, yeah. uh, two, you can get tickets to all 10 events, one ticket for each show for $200. Which is eight hundred and twenty-four dollars, and uh, yeah, and and how many people are not money. are buying tickets not just for them, but for their you know spouse or significant so other you're... or family? Oh, yeah. And yeah. interesting thing to think about: once they these people realize there weren't going to be ten shows, I'll bet you if they went to Watts to ask for a refund, he told them to talk to Leroy. Yeah. And if they went to Leroy for a refund, he yeah. told them to talk to Watts. Yeah. So, so they yeah. probably all got screwed on the deal. Yep. Yep. Uh, we've got some color photos on the next to last page and we have Wahoo McDaniel Stephen Little Bear who as we mentioned earlier did not appear for this show The Assassin and Jack Briscoe and then on the last page on the back cover is an ad for Imperial Furniture yes a full color yeah uh, where you can get three rooms of furniture plus a free TV for $599, which is probably somewhere between $2,000 and $2,500, based on what you said was the, um, what $200 <laughs> was worth today. If it's a little over times four, this is going to be somewhere around $2,500. You get a full-size bedroom set, headboard, footboard, mirror, dresser, chest, a two-piece living room set, a long, luxurious sofa, matching chair in assorted colors, and a five-piece dinette set for cushioned chairs with a matching table with an extra leaf. Oh, uh, that's the pull-out thing in the center, right? Yeah, I love the extra leaf. Yeah, it's good. You get a company, and boom, bang. Yeah. Uh, that plus a free TV, free TV for $600 from Imperial Furniture. So it's just, you know, it's one thing to go over the wrestling, but when you have a time capsule into the advertisements, mm. um, as well as... Other things that we can look at and say, well, this never happened, like the uh, the the season tickets for 1979. Plus, also looking at the TV and looking, you know, at it for clues as yeah. to uh, what other towns may have had shows that didn't. Uh, this is a great time capsule into what the wrestling program looked like. Briefly, going back to Lad and Candy on our blog. In this month's post, we look at the known matches between Ernie and Ray in the fourth quarter of 1978. They had been feuding since for you know most of the year with a, a few months break, but on and off for the whole year. But we've got the last three months of that feud, and it's a neat way of seeing the progression of the feud because we list it not just chronologically, but chronologically by city. So you can see how the feud played out in each market, and as we often mention on this podcast— it's not the same in every town. It's not like they all have, you know, the a ladder matches the blow off. They all don't have the same finish the first time out. You you really get a good feel for how the territories were able to have slightly different narratives in slightly different towns. And that's due to the local promos that were inserted to the TV before it went to all those markets that we talked about when going over the program. Odd couples, John. Mm. Oh, yeah. Usually when you have a tag team tournament like this, you you get a couple of odd couple tag teams. In this one, that really isn't the case. Um, The Angel and the Ox, uh, even though the Ox didn't show up, might have been one. Of course, 
you know, even though Wahoo McDaniel and Stephen Little Bear weren't a regular tag team, certainly they're not an odd couple tag team because, of course, they no. both had uh, that gimmick of being Native American. But even though only one of them actually was. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there is one team that that sort of doesn't quite fit together, other than the yeah. fact that they both shared the first the same first name. Yeah. And that's Ron Bass and Ron Slinker. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I think most of our listeners are familiar with Bass, and we talked about him a little previously on the podcast when he showed up along with, quote-unquote, brother Don and, quote-unquote, mother Ma Bass. Yep. But let's talk a little bit about Ron Slinker. Uh, we all know he's always been billed as a karate-slash-judo uh, expert and would mm-hmm. often uh, incorporate that into his moveset. Um, so... Let's talk about some of his matches. Uh, you always, you know, comb through YouTube footage to uh, oh, yeah. curate a list yes, of do. recommendations. So let's talk about what we can find on YouTube for Ron Slinker. The first one actually isn't even really uh, isn't even a match. It's just him him on commentary. But it's it's it it's, it's a, a, almost a I, I would almost call it a disastrous attempt. Uh, at commentary here for, for Ron as he uh, tries to explain what a ninja is here. I think this is a February 86 here. Um, I think this is the first time uh, that the great Muda was on US TV here uh, in Florida. So he's the white uh, ninja? The white ninja, yeah. And his opponent is uh, Prince Iakea, Rocky Iakea, the son, son, of, son of King Curtis, not the, not the fake Prince Iakea from WCW. Um, so they probably felt it made sense to have Ron Slinker go out and talk about what a ninja is. <laughs> it, it made sense in their heads. Yeah, so they, they bring him out. He's sitting there with Gordon, and uh, you know, Ron says, you know, Gordon sort of pitches to him, and Ron says, yeah, yeah, I've been traveling. I don't know exactly where I've been. I'm back. For how long? I don't know. It's like 10 seconds in Gordon Soli has this look on his face. Like this is already going off, off, off the rails. And then, uh, you know, then Ron goes and describes ninja as, as machines, something, you know, something superior to an athlete so that they're trained in an undisclosed location in Japan, which is kind of, it's kind of cool. Uh, then he goes on to describe all the different types of martial arts that ninjas are experts in. And also surmises that the ninja, would be a pretty good wrestler. Um, Sully then asks Ron about challenging for the national championship, and Ron says, well, you know what they say, mind over matter, and if you don't got no mind, it don't matter. And right now, my mind is somewhere else. <laughs> Sully, Sully says, uh, okay, if you're a little confused, I am too. And then <laughs> they just go right to the match. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a... I don't think Ron was ever asked back on commentary after that, and not surprising uh, why he would not be. The match is actually a pretty cool match. You see like, Muda, Muda do a moonsault finish. You don't see a lot of moonsaults on TV in the U.S. Yeah. in 1986. Maybe, maybe Lanny Poffo in a, in a prelim match on a WWF house show, but I can't think of anywhere else you might see a, a moonsault in 1986 on U.S. TV. Uh, also, I also picked one from 78, a little further back, Jerry Briscoe and uh, Jack Briscoe against Slinker and Rip Oliver, also Florida, also uh, from 1978. Uh, this short clip, three minutes or so. What I liked about this is, this is, this is some of the first 
around this time is the first time I, I remember seeing footage and photos of Slinker. And I like how he's wearing those, those orange, red, salmon-colored judo pants at every home. And initially, he reminded me of Jake Roberts, mm. pre-WWF, when he would wear those. Um, and... And, and him and Slinker sort of have like a similar build at this point, you know, that tall, lanky sort of thing. And even some of, some of Slinker's in-ring mannerisms here sort of remind me of Jake, the way he rolls out of the ring to take a powder reminds me of Jake. Uh, even the way he sells like, you know, the, the Briscoe Bulldog lying face down, grabbing his head and kicking his toes in the air remind me a little bit of Jake. It's a really short clip, but it's cool to see some little older footage of, of Ron. Uh, also got some more recent footage of Ron from the late 85, early 86, I think this is, uh, with R- when Roop was in the Army of Darkness. Slinker uh, uh, was in the Army of Darkness, rather, with Bob Roop, uh, Kevin Sullivan's crew here. And they're, they're facing Blackjack Mulligan and Kendall Wyndham. This match is kind of just like a, it goes off the rails very quickly, just ends up with a bunch of uh, Blackjack Mulligan, terrible-looking chair shots. Uh, lots and lots of bad chair shots. We got Harley Race on commentary, and uh, <laughs> he's, he's very funny on commentary, sort of making fun of Bob Roop here, saying he's an Olympic wrestler, and I'm looking at him now with a half-shaved head and a painted face and making all kinds of weird noises. <laughs> Grumpy old man Harley on commentary is pretty good. And the match, the match just goes, it's outside the ring. It's a mess. Everybody's running out. Finally, I think Wahoo comes out and breaks everybody up and gets everybody broken up. And Harley on commentary is saying, you'll notice how I'm not getting involved. <laughs> Understated. Hilarious. All right. So uh, yeah. What, so when we, when we talk about this YouTube footage, of course, we'll put a playlist up on our YouTube channel. And, and John, of course, is going to give us some descriptions about one, you know, about, a couple of the matches here, uh, but there's a few other. Uh, so very briefly talk about what else yeah. will be on that playlist. I have another one. Very short match. Opening match, Battle of the Belts 2. Uh, Ron Slinker against uh, the Bahamian champ, Tyree Pride. Opening match. Very quick match. No crazy spots. Five minutes of wrestling. A great opening match for a super card. Uh, if you want to watch... Ron Slinker be a great heel. This is a, a great, he's a perfect heel, opening match heel in this match. Great one. Um, there's also a trailer that you must watch. If you watch any of these, I would say watch the trailer for the 1979 film Mr. No Legs, starring Ron Slinker. Um, if you like 70s exploitation movies, you will like this movie. Um, and Ron Slinker is a main character in this movie. He's now does a little bit part. He's like one of the, the top build actors in this. Uh, if you like the 70s, weird 70s stuff, you'll love it. Um, the last one I have is him sort of just getting involved in like a run-in situation here uh, in a match between Ken Lucas and Jimmy Golden uh, in Southeastern February 81. I love Southeastern footage, and it's cool seeing Ron uh, – doing a baby face thing here. I, just, I think it's the only footage I've seen of him being a baby face is here in Southeast uh, February 81. So that's you're into the Southeast stuff. Uh, it's pretty good. You get Les Thatcher, Charlie Platt, Jimmy Golden, you get Ron Bass running in. So uh, it's kind of, there cool you go. The two Rons at once again, two we started <laughs> because they were teaming up together and now here they are uh, both involved in that Southeastern clip from 1981. There you go. 
So that's Slinker's wrestling career, plus his quote-unquote acting career. Uh, <laughs> and you, you may wonder how legit were his credentials, and the answer is pretty darn legit. Yeah. Um, in fact, as early as 1962, there is a mention of him uh, in the newspaper when, as a 16-year-old, he won first place in his age division at uh, a spring judo tournament held at the Seminole Heights Community Center in Florida. Uh, this was open to students in the city and county sports judo program uh, for ages eight, uh, sorry, from six to 16, and Slinker won in the 16-year-old division. Uh, several years later, eight years later, uh, Slinker won the Southeast Judo title. And there's a, we'll post this newspaper article on Twitter, but there's some interesting info uh, towards the end of the article about his uh, background. So, John, uh, why don't you read the last couple of paragraphs? Yeah, the article goes into a little bit of his martial arts background, how he started with Judo uh, at 14, 15 years old. A year later, starts practicing karate, 64 when the the Northeast Invitational in DC representing the US Marines uh, in 66 he won the inter-service inter-island karate championship of Okinawa and in uh 67 he was named the captain of the judo team at Camp Lejeune the Marine Corps base in North Carolina yeah so so he's he's pretty legit Let, let's yeah, but, let's be yeah. real uh, and uh, aside from excelling in karate and judo he also before his wrestling career he was a police officer but he wasn't just any police officer uh, much like liam neeson he had a special set of skills that uh, made him highly valuable to the uh, police department and that was the ability to look like a to dress up and look like a woman yes there's an article from the December 29th, 1971 tampa times with the wonderful headline that victim was no lady that was a cop. Yes. yes. <laughs> and there's, there's a great, they have a photo of him in his police uniform on the left-hand side of the page. And the right-hand side of the page has him dressed, going undercover, dressed with a woman with the, the big beehive wig on, sunglasses, and a purse. Looks like a, looks like a plus-size Gene Stapleton. Here, yes. This, this, was, this was in response to a rash of perch-snatching incidents in the area. So they would yeah. have uh, some undercover cops dressed up as women, women yeah. hoping to get their purses snatched so that they could uh, <laughs> subdue and arrest the perpetrators. There's a follow-up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the... There's a picture of him on the next page of the article uh, in his karate gi, uh, billing him as a judo karate champ. So a very well-rounded individual. And I guess his work uh, undercover led to a rather amusing nickname for him on the force. Uh, About five months later, an article in the Tampa Times (laughs) talks about uh, him representing the Tampa Police Department in the National Karate Championships, but yep. they give him, uh, they, they list his nickname here. So, John, what is uh, Officer Ron Slinker's nickname? It's Ron High Heels Slinker. Ron uh, High Heels Slinker. And uh, the last paragraph of this article, uh, Joanne Sinclair, Executive Secretary of Citizens Alert, which helped finance Slinker's trip, said, everybody likes to send him to these things because he's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> early, 70, early 70s Ron Slinker was a real cutie patootie. He was a real cutie patootie. Uh, and yeah. then a year later, uh, he was part of the festivities at the University of South Florida's homecoming week. 
Yeah. Which featured yeah. a basketball game, a bounce-a-thon, a yeah. lecture <laughs> by Bill Russell. Yeah, what's going on? <laughs> and some demonstrations from USF sports clubs, which included the um, the the instructor of the competition karate club was going to fight. Fight. Ron High Heels Slinker, but that wasn't the only involvement of Slinker in Homecoming Week. What else was he apparently slated to do? No, uh, Slinker may catch arrows fired at him. Now, are they saying they may do a thing where they shoot arrows and he catches them? Or are they saying we're going to shoot arrows at him and he may catch them or he may yeah. not or he may die? He may he may just let the arrows hit himself in the chest. Who knows? <laughs> just to say. show off his his incredible muscle, you know, strengthening techniques, where he tightens his chest up, much like when Nelson Royal, at the at an advanced age, when I met him in the late nineties, uh, encouraged me to punch him in the stomach as oh, a demonstration God. of how strong his stomach muscles are. Perhaps uh, Slinker's upper body was such was so strong that they could deflect an arrow. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Uh, and. Yeah, really. Uh, there's a really fascinating article. We don't have time to get into it, but uh, a great article in 1973 about uh, Slinker, where not only was he a cop, he was a former bail bondsman, and at one point yeah. had a local drug kingpin take a hit out on him. Yeah. Um, a few years later, there's an article talking about him uh, being in a karate exhibition, which in and of itself isn't a big thing. It's it's more the location for the exhibition because it was scheduled to take place. At the Fort Homer Hesterly Armory in Tampa, yeah. which, of course, was the home for championship wrestling from Florida for many years. Uh, Ron also was involved in a prototype, uh, a proto-MMA event. Uh, this yeah. is in 1980. It's called Battle of the Gladiators. This is a wide-open fight for cash prizes. Opponents may use wrestling, boxing, karate, judo, or street fighting style to win example how can tim brooks black belt karate of fort myers do against street fighters boxers or wrestlers uh of course there's a follow-up article in the paper questioning if this is a safe sport or dangerous spectacle we don't have a quote from um john mccain calling it human cockfighting that would come (laughs) years later in the response to ufc uh but then a recap of the event uh, mentions that the referee is Ron Slinker, and the headline is Battle of the Gladiators, Uncivilized for Many. So Ron, both before and after his professional wrestling career, was heavily involved in the martial arts and uh, fighting scene throughout Florida. Of course, most of his career in the ring was spent in the Southeast, in Florida, in Southeastern. Of course, this run here for Leroy McGurk, but he really never strayed far from Florida. Now, he was born in Washington State, so interesting to see him uh, end up moving to the literal opposite, you know, end of the country, both, you know, both horizontally and vertically. You can't get any more opposite than going from Washington State to Florida. Uh, Speaking of Florida, of course, the announcer for championship wrestling was for championship wrestling from Florida was Gordon Soley. Oh, good transition. And that's a great segue into our next segment.
Sean. Yes. Are you yes. ready to play yeah. Gordon Soley's championship wrestling trivia? I am. I, and I've done so poorly uh, in the last few months that it's at the point now where I, I am no longer nervous. Okay. Because I've done so poorly. I have such low expectations of myself. <laughs> well, there you go. That's that's the way to do it. Go Set your expectations low and you'll never be low. disappointed. Exactly. Question so. number one. We mentioned Bob Roop earlier. Mm -hmm. Bob Roop wrestled for the U.S. in which Olympics? Give me the year or the location. Uh, I want to say 1968. That is correct. Correct. Bing. For bonus points... Do you know where the 68 Olympics were held? Mexico. Wow, John, you're off to a great start because you have bonus points. Nice. The uh, 68 Olympics were in Mexico City. Fantastic. Question number two. What tag team was known as the High Flyers? We talked about them earlier in this episode. Drake Gagne and Jim Brazil. That is correct. Okay. All right. Next one. Involving nobody we've talked about in this episode so far. <laughs> you might know this one. This is, this is, if you know it, you know it. If you don't, you'll okay. never get it. Okay. Who had a role in the movie Wise Guys with Danny DeVito? Uh, uh, Captain Lou Albano. Wow. You are, not only are you three for three, but since you have bonus points, you are four for three. <laughs> <laughs> which means wow. you can totally whiff on the next one and you'd still get a perfect score. Nice. But if you oh, get nice. it right, if you get the last question right, we'll carry those bonus points over to next month so you can oh. negate a, an incorrect answer. You can use your bonus points to uh, get it right. Like unused vacation days. Exactly. It's a rollover, a rollover cell phone <laughs> minutes. The last question is true or false, and this is the stupidest question I've seen to date from this from this game, which is saying a lot. Each okay. wrestling, true or false, each wrestling federation in its rules sets the percentage of a manager's share of a wrestler's purse. It's got to be false. That's okay. kinda, Yes. False because that doesn't exist. It, there are no rules. Okay, uh, yeah. But even if we pretend there were, that's not okay. the type of thing they would say. Okay, okay good. John, you have a perfect score. See what happens when you set your expectations low? It works, people. It works. And I'll, just so our listeners know, this was the first card I pulled out of the stack at random. I, I'm not looking you're, at you're, them trying to pick easy ones or hard ones. <laughs> I think there was one a couple of months ago where I looked at the questions and I thought they were way too hard and I, I didn't use it. But other than that, I literally just pick a card at random from, from the whole lot and uh, asked them. And John got a perfect oh. score. Oh. Well, Christmas present to myself. There you go. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> so when we went over the card for the Superdome, we touched on pretty much all of the wrestlers that were in the territory at that time as it was an all-hands-on-deck card as opposed to what they normally did where they're normally at this point in time running two shows a night. But this was uh, one big loaded show. But... There were some wrestlers in the territory earlier in the quarter who had left before Christmas, before the Superdome card. You can look at the entire roster for this time period on our blog. And of course, we list them uh, in descending order by spot rating. So you can see who the main eventers, upper mid-carders, mid-carders, and preliminary wrestlers were. And as always, there are some interesting names in the prelims. Uh, Leon Ogle. And Ogle really mostly wrestled in Georgia and didn't get out much. And I, I knew that 
when I first started looking into Georgia, I was wondering if there was a reason why, and it turns out there is. Ogle was the son-in-law of Fred Ward, who uh, hmm. promoted shows for GCW in Columbus and Macon and the surrounding areas. So good old-fashioned nepotism yeah. uh, is how he got a start, which was also how uh, the Oates brothers got their start, because they were uh, related by marriage, I believe, to Dickie Steinborn. Huh. And when Steinborn was was uh, was helping in Georgia, that's when uh, Jerry Oates uh, made his debut, and I think Ted Oates came along not too long thereafter. Another wrestler was Herb Calvert, and this means that Ray Candy, who was sometimes billed as the Candyman in pro wrestling, was not the only Candyman in the territory, because Herb, post-wrestling, earned the nickname The Candyman. And John, I think we've talked about this in the podcast. Do you recall how he got that nickname? I don't remember. Uh, He worked for a vending machine company. Okay. And he literally was the guy that showed up to refill the candy vending machines Ah. in offices. So, and and of course, he was a very big guy. Um, He was a heavyweight. I think at one point when he worked in Florida, his nickname was Hulk, like Herb Hulk Calvert. Uh, He was a pretty big guy. He also, at one point, he broke Danny Hodge's record for most pinfalls in a single season in college. Oh, wow. Uh, But yes. uh, So think of a very big man coming in. Refilling candy. And you can see why they would call him the candy man. Uh, As we mentioned earlier, Gamma Singh was here. Of course, best known uh, in the 80s for his career in Stampede, where he faced uh, Owen Hart, Benoit, uh, all the the great stars that that passed through Stampede in the 80s. Uh, Gamma Singh was a big star there. But as recently as 2020, he was with Impact Wrestling as a manager. And one thing I didn't know, his nephew... Jinder Mahal. Interesting. Wow. Did not know that. And another interesting name that appears in the prelims uh, in the fourth quarter of 1978 in Leroy McGurk's territory is a man who became a jack of all trades in professional wrestling. From ring announcer to manager to commentator to wrestler to announcer to booker to promoter. He did it all. Mm. And he was always billed as a member of a very famous wrestling family, although he was not legitimately related to any of the other Dusiks, to the actual brothers of the Dusik riot squad, talking, of course, about Frank Dusik. Mm-hmm. Now, Frank, uh, his father, I think, was working for Crockett when Frank was born. Yep. And Frank grew up in North Carolina. His real name is Frank Santon, S-A-N-T-E-N. And, uh, as early as 1968, he was wrestling in, I believe, high school. Uh, well, there's an article from the Charlotte Observer where he um, helped lead the Independence Patriots to a wrestling victory over Olympic. We'll also post a yearbook photo uh, of the wrestling team, uh, including Frank. He was also on the football team. Yeah. Well-rounded athlete. And yep. uh, as part of that yearbook that John found, we also have a yearbook photo. Oh, we'll yeah. post that for young Frank Santon. He then uh, served in the Navy in 1976. And from there went on to do just about everything in the world of professional wrestling, originally starting for Crockett, uh, and then had a brief and rather unspectacular career 
as a professional wrestler. Uh, He's here wrestling in 1978. Uh, A few years later, he would be back in this territory as a manager, I believe managing the Super Destroyer and the Grappler uh, as part of the Super Destroyer's feud with Jim Garvin in 81. They sort of built the whole, if Garvin pins the Super Destroyer, uh, he'll get five minutes with manager Frank Dusick. But in later years, Frank uh, became a very regular contributor to the Wrestling Classics website. And there's some great stories from Frank on that site. So, John, if you could pick out a couple of those stories uh, and talk about those. Let's see. What do I have? My favorite one, and this will this will sort of come into uh, what I was talking about earlier or I'll talk about later when I talk about one of his videos. Uh, He talks about how to keep the fans from controlling your match. And uh, he he talks about uh, wrestling, who's a Goldie Rogers, Rogers. I think it is. Um, And he talks about how the the, the fans, once the the high spot was over and they settle into a, a hold, they would start chanting boring, like and he compares it to the baseball fans would do to Daryl Strawberry. And because a lot of the wrestlers weren't weren't that experienced, they would think that their match wasn't going well and then they'd panic and they'd go back into some other sort of ill-advised high spot and they'd be blown up, you know, five, ten minutes into their into their match. Um and then, you know, he he talks about wrestling Goldie Rogers. Uh, got him in a headlock or whatever. Crowd chance boring. Goldie tries to get to his feet to do another spot, and he pulls him back down. He's like, "That's not boring. This is boring." For the next, so for the next 15 minutes, he's sort of doing the the, the Johnny Valentine thing, where they're working this series of, you know, quote unquote rest holes and near near pins, and finally, uh, the fans start, you know, chant stop, and the fans start to lose interest, and that's when he has Goldie starts to make his comeback and the fans suddenly get reinvested in the match and then they go back down. <laughs> they go back down. So that sort of thing. And like, he finally makes his comeback, Goldie Rogers, the place freaking erupts. Fans are on their feet, you know, throwing the, throwing the babies and the popcorn and the whole, whole thing. Um, and it's like, you know, he sort of recounts this as a lesson he was told by veterans like Ole Anderson and Ivan Koloff. Um, you know, since his, since he first started, that when you're in the ring, you're wrestling, you're what the fans paid to see. You are in charge of the action, not the fans. We always, always remember that, and this is a good little. And this, this will tie into one of the one of the videos I'll, I'll talk about um, a little in a, in a few minutes here. Um, and there's another one that he told about the Von Erichs, which is really funny because so many of the Von Erichs stories that you hear are just sad, depressing, right. dark, bleak ass stories. Um, <laughs> so he told one uh, about how uh, years ago when wrestlers, you know, would had a legit injury, um, they wouldn't want to fully bandage it up or brace it up uh, because it wouldn't make sense to the fans. Like, oh, if this guy has his knee taped up and he's legitimately injured, why doesn't this guy attack that that? you know, obviously injured things. So they would take a little pit of, uh, you know, athletic tape and put it in the area that was affected. So that was a signal to the opponent to, you know, Hey, watch out for, watch out for my knee. Cause this is hurt. Work the other knee or an arm or something. Um, so one night, um, him and I think, while Bill Irwin 
Um, and they were wrestling some combination of the Von Erics on a spot show. So when they get to the ring, take their robes off, ring jackets, they're just absolutely covered in dozens of pieces of athletic tape all over their body. So everybody, Von Erics, everybody in the back, everybody is just cracking up uh, because, you know, it just, they just, to the, to the fans, it looks like they just cut themselves shaving in every possible place <laughs> right. of their body. So it's a little, I just love ones like these that are like, I, I enjoy a fun Von Eric story. And this is a, sure. this is a, a fun, a, happy, a, a funny, <laughs> a happy Von Eric story as opposed to the ones we <laughs> normally hear. So again, you curated a list of uh, Frank Dusick matches and we're going to put up a playlist on YouTube. So which match uh, relates to the story you're talking about, about ga- uh, regaining control from the fans? Oh, there's one, uh, Spoiler versus Frank Dusick. Okay, so, uh, so talk about that one a little bit. Yeah, Houston, it's Houston 1979. Uh, the And I think initially, I wasn't quite sure, starting off, who's the heel, who's the baby face here, because I've, I've always known Frank to be, be the heel. Uh, but uh, it's sort of, Spoiler starts out pretty early. You know, you know, you know he's the heel with some, some tights grabbing, some not breaking on the ropes. Spoiler's just awesome to watch here, the way he uses the ropes, not just climbing them, but how he uses them to get Dusek. It's really cool to watch. Um, and this is the kind of match, though. Like, if, if, you, if, you, if you look at the YouTube comments on this, people will complain about, like, the five-minute arm bar or something like that. But if you watch these sequences, you know, actually watch them, uh, you can see how good these guys are at, 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 at doing that. Um, you know, spoilers not just lying there in a hammerlock from Dusex. He's he's starting upright, then he's sort of bent down on bent over, then he's on one knee, then he's back up, and he can't wrestle his way out of the arm bar, so he pokes Dusek in the eye. And it's amazing the amount of drama that these guys can get out of something as simple as like an arm bar or a hammerlock. And it's a different kind of drama than that of a high spot. And that kind of drama, that kind of tension and release. The combination of those things in a match can really help escalate what would be an average, you know, sort of undercard match into an above average match. And that's that's why I like that match. And that sort of relates to what Dusek was saying in that quote about uh, not letting the fans control your match. So I highly recommend this one. Yeah. And the, um, the other matches from Dusek on the on the playlist, there's a match against Rick Martell from Portland in 1979, one against Dusty uh, in Mid-South from 1980, one against Kerry Von Erich from World Class in 1982, and one against Barry Windham from Florida in 1983. So you have a nice uh, chronological progression, uh, all from different territories of seeing Frank Dusick in action, and of course, visit his page at wrestlingclassics.com for some great stories about Frank. And you'll probably learn a whole lot about, yeah. you know, how wrestlers put together matches, just like John and I learn something new every month when we prepare for this podcast. And we share one thing we learned on a segment appropriately named This Month I Learned. So, yeah. John, what did you learn this month? One of my favorite things to search for on the old uh, newspaper archive sites is wrestlers being arrested. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes they are for very serious things. Sometimes they're more humorous in nature. This one, lucky for us, falls on the humorous side. I thought so. Um, I've heard of wrestlers being arrested right after a match for getting involved in a scuffle with fans or for having even having an outstanding warrant for, or something of that nature. But I've never heard of something like this happening until now. Uh, the headline reads, Wrestler Jailed 
then allowed to resume match. Uh, so to summarize, this month I learned that on the evening of April 24th, 1933, Birmingham, Alabama, police took wrestler Al Stetcher to jail in nothing but his wrestling trunks that had no effect on his grappling ability. After spending 15 minutes in Birmingham's lockup, Stetcher returned to the ring and threw George Romanoff of Los Angeles for two falls out of three. Stetcher and Romanoff had started their match when both fell out of the ring. Stetcher picked up a chair, and when an officer intervened, word followed. The wrestler was arrested, but allowed to return after making bond at the jail. So that's a, that was a new one for me. Wow, what year was that again? 1933, which is Picking up a chair outside yeah. the ring seems wild for 1933 also. Yeah, it does. Well, that's that's crazy. I've never heard that before. Uh, I wonder what the promotion did in, you know, because they they probably couldn't have known that he was coming back, <laughs> right? They didn't have cell phones. So it's, you know, they, yeah, just, <laughs> they were probably, you know, they probably had another match going on. And all of a sudden he shows back up like, no, let's go. And it was like a big story. This made the AP wire. It was in like wow. a bunch of different papers. So it made it made they made the round. All right. Well, so that's what you learned. Uh, now, for me, we've talked about the split between Leroy McGurk and Bill Watts, which happened in September of 1979. Leroy ran Tri-State Wrestling, which operated in Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Missouri, uh, parts of Arkansas and Missouri, and most of Oklahoma, and for a brief while, actually had uh, an arrangement with uh, uh, Jerry Kozak to run Amarillo or to provide talent for weekly shows in Amarillo that oh. featured some of the remnants from the Amarillo territory, uh, like Dennis Stamp and uh, Ricky Romero, uh, along with McGurk's guys. But for the most part, operated in three states through March of 1982, when Leroy folded his promotion and Watts uh, took over. Uh, that part of of the country as well. So not only by you know by mid 1982, Watts not only has Louisiana and Mississippi, but also Oklahoma and Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, I don't know that he ever ran in the Missouri towns that McGurk could run, but he could have. Uh, the first show for Watts's Mid South Wrestling in Tulsa was on April 18th, 1982. This month I learned that Watts wasn't the only promoter who ran Tulsa shortly after Leor and McGurk closed up shop because four days after Watts ran Tulsa, there was a scheduled show from Fritz von Erich in Tulsa. Tulsa. Wow. Yeah. Now I've have ads for this show in the Tulsa newspaper. I don't have any results. I have no reason to believe the show didn't take place, but it's wild that Watts ran on April 18th, which was a uh, Sunday, and then uh, Fritz was scheduled to run Thursday, April 22nd, four nights later. Now, not long after this, Fritz and Watts entered into an agreement. Basically, Fritz gave Watts some money and in exchange uh, got parts of Tulsa and Oklahoma City. And that's why not long after this, you see Kerry Von Erich and Chris Adams and, and other world-class guys yeah. working on Mid-South shows in Tulsa and Oklahoma City on the weekends. Hmm. And in exchange, um, Fritz would get a portion of the proceeds from those two towns. Hmm. It probably won't surprise you to learn that Fritz ended up <laughs> suing Watts 
<laughs> claiming that Watts didn't pay him his share of those revenues. But perhaps both of them trying to run Tulsa was what necessitated that arrangement to begin with. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Now, uh, we briefly mentioned when talking about Frank Dusick that he, uh, we have a match on YouTube for him uh, from Portland against Rick Martell. In addition to covering the McGurk territory on the blog, I also uh, posted a look at Pacific Northwest from 1979. And this uh, came out of my appearance on the Portland WrestleCast with Jim Valley last month. So you can check it out at chartingtheterritories.com. 79 is a great year to look at Portland. Uh, the big mm. thing is Piper turning babyface to feud with Buddy Rose. But there's a host of well-known wrestlers up and down the cards in various stages of their careers. Not only do you have young Piper, you have a young Lanny Poffo as Lanny Holiday. You have a young Adrian Adonis. You have um, you have the Sheep Herders coming in. You have... Uh, you just have a lot of very recognizable names to 80s wrestling fans coming into Portland in 1979. Uh, so, John, as far as Portland goes, what what uh, what year sticks out for you for Portland? Oh, huh. I mean, I, the, I, mean I, 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 I don't mean to, to the 79 be a cop out here, but it's kind of the one that I've been thinking about most recently because of your appearance on Jim Valley show, which is which is very good and reading the almanac. Yeah. Um, but Portland in Portland, just generally speaking, Portland is such a cool territory. Um, and I, and I love, the thing I love about Portland is they almost seem to, to benefit from the fact that they did not have, uh, you know, national coverage in the magazines for the most part. And we're just on local television that you almost, they almost use that to their advantage as a, Sort of breeding ground for like a it's a great place for a wrestler if they had to go they had to go away and, yeah. and learn learn a hold. In '79, Tully shows up for like five or six weeks. Tully yep. Blanchard, young Tully Blanchard. So that's the perfect example of that. Is yep. you know send him somewhere fresh where he can work with a different crew and uh, you know learn learn new things, learn different styles, learn different ways of doing things. Yep. Now for details on the Portland. Almanac from 1979, as well as all of these statistics and other things we've discussed on the podcast, be sure to visit our blog at chartingtheterritories.com to see playlists of the matches that John and I discussed featuring Ron Slinker and Frank Dusick. Check us out on YouTube by searching for Charting the Territories. And next month on the podcast, we're going to talk about 1971. So if you want to get a head start on 1971, you can always order my book, the 1971 to 1973 Leroy McGurk, Oklahoma, Louisiana Wrestling Almanac. You can find it on Amazon by searching for Charting the Territories by Al Getz. So we're covering 1971. Uh, in the two years plus, about two and a half years, we've been doing this podcast. We've covered Leroy's territory for most of the 70s, uh, up through 1981, as well as a good chunk of the 1960s. We haven't done it all, and one year we have yet to cover is 1971. Uh, so we're going to do that next month on the Charting the Territories podcast. Both Bill Watts and Danny Hodge spent most of 1971 fending off challenges from a veritable who's who of the wrestling world. So we'll look at one year in the life of Leroy's territory in a way that hasn't been done before. You know, since I started charting the territories, I've always used the beginning of the calendar year to launch new features and new stats, and 2023 won't be any different. Mm. 
to stay on top of uh, everything charting the territories related and Al Gets related. You can follow me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. John, you gave your Twitter handle earlier, but hit it one more time for uh, those in the back. One more time. J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. Follow me for all sorts of fun wrestling stuff as well. And if you want to uh, see John's attempts to uh, turn tales from the territories into truths from the territories, <laughs> you can watch uh, Tales from the Territories, where John was uh, one of the consultants uh, or whatever uh, we're going to call your official title, but you are a contributor to that like series. Uh, it finished its first season run. Do we know anything about season two? No, I don't know anything about okay. it. Nothing. All right. Well, well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. I've heard rumblings that there is going to be another season of Dark Side of the Ring. I can't comment on that. Okay. Uh, so I, he, John cannot comment on the rumblings. <laughs> perhaps if you want to see another season, you can wish for it for Christmas. And perhaps Santa or John will come shimmying down the chimney and grant you your wish. But seriously, whatever you celebrate, uh, whether it be Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa or any other end of the year holiday, we uh, at tr- we here at Charting the Territories wish you a very happy holiday season and a safe, happy, and prosperous new year. Our next episode will come out in 2023. Now, normally, uh, we've been releasing our episodes on the fourth Thursday of every month. However, starting next month, we're going to change that. Uh, we're very slowly going to move to earlier in the calendar month. Starting next month, we're going to release this episode on the third Thursday of the month. And then we're going to stay like that for a couple more months. And then in April, it will come out on the second Thursday. And if you really pay attention to the calendar, this means that you'll get a new episode every four weeks for the next few months, because there's a fifth Thursday in December and there's a fifth Thursday in March. So we're going to have episodes every four weeks until we're at the second Thursday of the month, which will happen in April. And from that point on, all our episodes will come out on the second Thursday of every month. To be the first to know when new episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. From all of us at Charting the Territories, and when I say all of us, I mean John and I, happy holidays and happy new year, and we'll see Everybody in January. See you in January.